Well, good morning, everybody, and Happy New Year's to you all. Thank you, thank you. I can't think of a better way to start a new year uh, than to gather together as a church to worship and praise Him, uh, to open up His Word together and be reminded of who He is and His plan for our lives. Uh, Can you think of a better thing to do? (laughs) Awesome. Hey, then turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 which John just read, Matthew chapter 16. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat racks, it's on page 771, 771. And uh, we're in Matthew chapter 16. So, and I do want to just thank the worship team, you know, John and and all those who get up here. Um, You know, they meet every Wednesday night and they practice and then they come here really early on Sunday mornings and practice again and then lead two services. So I'm just very thankful for them and how they lead us in that time. I always love just worshiping and singing. So thank you for that. Um, For those of you who are guests, welcome here. We're so glad you came. And my name is Andy Middlecoff. I am one of the associate pastors here and uh, so blessed to have you. We'd love to meet you. I'll be out in the courtyard afterwards. I can meet you there. Uh, We also have people at booths out there that you can uh, get a gift at. Okay, we want to give you a gift and answer any questions you may have. So thank you for coming and welcome to all the rest of you, of course. And to those of you who are online, welcome here. God bless you. I'm glad you could uh, watch online as well. Um, This Sunday, we don't have any classes. Our our Sunday morning classes here are called Connection Classes. We have children's, youth, and adults. And starting next Sunday, the youth and adults start again. And uh, the adult classes, we're going to have five new classes. Um, And I'm going to just give you a breakdown of those real quick. There's going to be one on how to study the Bible, one on how to pray, one on the book of Revelation, one on our identity in Christ, and one on spiritual warfare. One of those is going to be during first service, the rest during second service. Uh, but go on our website under small groups, and you can look at the details on those as well. So please consider uh, joining one of those groups as well. And this morning, we're going to start a new sermon series called The Church, a five-week series that we will be doing. So uh, do you think we should pause and thank the Lord for getting us through 2022? And, and, uh, and praying for him to help us get through this year. <laughs> maybe that sounds, uh, maybe not so uh, hopeful, but man, it's by his grace, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you, to your precious son, Jesus, to your Holy Spirit, for uh, getting us through another year, for providing for us, for protecting us. There were many ups and there were many downs, but you were faithful every day, and we want to acknowledge that. We want to applaud you. And we tell you that we needed you. And this coming year, Lord, um, uh, we look forward to good things, but we know there will be trials and struggles and tests. And uh, we just pray that every day we would remember that you are truly with us and for us uh, and and that we have heaven to look forward to and that your spirit's going to be with us every day. There's genuine forgiveness. There's hope for us because of you. We bless you. We praise you. We ask that you guide us now as we look into your most holy word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So we're starting a series on the church. And I'll be honest with you, I love the church. Wherever at, I get to go in the world and be a part of a church. I love it. But it wasn't always that way. Growing up, my dad was a devout atheist. And my mom was a brand new believer in Christ. Um, So I was kind of in the middle. I'd go to church uh, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. And I appreciated certain things about the church, especially things like the toys you'd get when you memorized verses. 
Um, but I believed most of what they were teaching. I just didn't really take it to heart, you know, and maybe someone here this morning can understand what that's like. That might be where you have been in the past or where you're at right now. Well, you don't have to always be there. Um, I would, in fact, uh, sing the songs when I found out that when I sang, it made the church service go by faster. Not a good motive for singing, but I wanted to get out of church soon so I could go skateboard. <clears throat> but then when I was 18 years old, by God's amazing grace and mercy, he got a hold of my life. He got a hold of my heart. I finally realized, yeah, I am a sinner and I desperately need Jesus Christ's death on that cross and resurrection from the grave for me personally. It's not just good for everybody else. It's for me, and I need it. So in my Honda Civic hatchback out um, at my college, because that's the only place I could be alone, <laughs> I just called out to God and, and trusted Him and gave Him my life. And from that day forward, I was His child. I was a forgiven sinner. I had eternal life to look forward to and a relationship with God to develop. And I am so grateful for that. And I began at that point to have a different view of the church. I began to appreciate the church. Uh, where once it was a burden, it became a blessing. Uh, I loved going to church on Sunday mornings and now singing for the right reasons, right? Um, gathering together with other believers of different ages and, and being encouraged, having uh, relationships, going to the classes on Sunday mornings, uh, going to small groups during the week in Bible studies, uh, reading the Bible on my own for the first time. Um, then, then eventually, by God's grace, I got to begin to help with the junior high group. And I got to begin to teach small groups and teach the big group of the junior hires and begin to love that and, and uh, enjoy that and find my place in his word, in his, in his church. Um, his church became no longer something that I had to uh, bear through and something now that was a treasure to my heart. And it still is to this day after 30 years of being a follower of Christ. So as I said, this morning we're going to start a new sermon series called The Church. And what do you think the series is going to be about? The church. Well done. You're, you're tracking. I was wondering how many people are going to be awake today after, after being up uh, from all the noises last night at midnight, right? But uh, congratulations. So this morning we're going to talk about the origin of the church. Then we're going to talk about the purpose of the church then the unity of the church, then your place in the church, and then finally, the future of the church. So come and join us for the next few weeks uh, as we go through this. Um, and, and why are we doing a sermon series on the church? Isn't it just a given? We know what the church is about. Well, not necessarily. Um, our hope is that during this sermon series that some of you who were maybe where I was at, just sort of bearing through church to get through it, you know, to go do something more, quote, important, right? that you'd come to a place to treasure the church. Or, or maybe you've been hurt by a church in your past. Maybe it was this one. And hopefully through this, you'll experience some healing and get a fresh vision for the church. Or maybe you're a part of the church, but you haven't found a way to really connect with people, getting to know them um, in a more satisfying and deep level. Uh, or maybe you'd like to use your abilities that God's given you to serve and you're not sure how or where. And so through this series, our hope is to begin to, to uh, aim you in that direction, answer some questions, and point you uh, to these things to help you grow in these ways. So this morning, we're going to look at, starting where we should start, the, the origin of the church, how the church began. And we're going to break it down into two main points. The first is the promise of the church, 
And then we're going to look at the planting of the church, the promise of the church and the planting of the church. So first of all, how the church began. Uh, Following in the notes there, if you have them, uh, the promise of the church. Before the church began, Christ promised to begin it. It wasn't an afterthought, like Jesus came to the earth and goes, oh, maybe I should start something, and uh, maybe I'll call it the church, right? No, it wasn't an afterthought. In fact, this is part of God's plan from eternity past. When Christ came, he promised that, it would, that he would begin it at some point. And John read that passage, thank you, John, for that, from Matthew 16. And we're just going to zero in on a few of those verses that John read earlier, starting in verse 16. If you look with me at Matthew 16, 16, after Jesus asked who he was, and Peter replies this, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, meaning son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, meaning humanity has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It's God who reveals to people who Jesus is. Verse 18, Listen to what what Jesus says in response to um, Peter's confession. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Wow, powerful words, beautiful words. Let's break this apart and see what it's talking about. First of all, when Jesus responds to Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus gave him a new name, the name Peter, which means rock. So take a look at that verse again in verse 18. He says, and I tell you, verse 18, you are Peter or rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And by calling Peter rock and saying on this rock I will build my church, he's saying that you, Peter, and especially the confession you're making of who I am is the rock upon which I'm about to build my church. Some have skewed this, some have twisted this to give it a meaning that's not in the Scripture to say that this made Peter the head of the church and the foundation of the church. Who alone has the right to be called the head of the church? Christ, yes. For example, Colossians 1.18, the Apostle Paul says this, and he, that's Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He, Jesus, is the beginning the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he'd be the supreme one. He's supreme over the church and over all of creation. Jesus alone has the right to be called the head of the church. No man has that right. Uh, Those who falsely teach that Peter was the head and the foundation of the church also teach that once Peter died, that like a baton, he'd pass that role on to the next generation and next, next till today, until Jesus Returned. There's nothing in Scripture that says anything about uh, passing on any sort of role like that. The only passing on was from the apostles to the elders of each local church. So then, what does it mean then, if that's not what it means, what does it mean that he's the rock, that Peter was called the rock? And, and what does it mean that it's his confession? So we see in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, something very important that helps us understand this. Take a look with me up at the screen. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul explains, so then you, that's people who are not Jewish and believers in Christ like most of us, you are no longer strangers and aliens from God or God's people, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, meaning Jewish believers in Christ, 
and members of the household of God, listen to this, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What is this saying? Jesus himself is the cornerstone of the church. He's the most important stone of the foundation of the church. Now, it's, it's exciting when you go back in archaeology and study ancient buildings, how they would have massive, massive stones as, as the cornerstone of a building. If that cornerstone was set just right, then the rest of the foundation built, um, uh, built with that would be just right as well, and level and perfect. And then the building would be level and perfect. If the cornerstone was off, the rest of the foundation would be off, the rest of the building would be off, and therefore it would be dangerous and crumble in the next earthquake. Jesus is that cornerstone for us, for the church, whether it's Laurel Glen Bible Church or any other church. He's the cornerstone. Since he is perfect, everything else can be set in place just right. But it doesn't just say that Jesus alone is the foundation. He's saying now also here in that scripture that the apostles are the foundation. How is it that they can be the foundation too? Well, remember, because they spoke the word of Christ. If they ever deviated from that, they're not the foundation. They spoke the word of Christ, which is recorded in the word of God in the New Testament. So ultimately then, Christ is the foundation. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 3, that he is the foundation, but it's his apostles who then proclaimed him and began the church. Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles make up the rest. If you read in, a, um, in Revelation, I believe it's in Revelation 21, or 22, it talks about the 12 stones of the foundation. The apostles are those 12 stones. What difference does this make to us that Jesus is our cornerstone and that the apostles and their teaching is the rest of that foundation for us? What difference does it make? Well, as individuals and as families, it makes all kinds of difference. Our lives are constantly changing. Things that we depend on fall through. People we can't depend on. Money we can't depend on. Our jobs we can't necessarily depend on, right? But who can we depend on? Christ. He is our firm foundation. No matter what you're going through, there is stability, there is security because of who he is and what he's done for us. Okay? What does it mean for us as a church or for any of his churches throughout the world? What does it mean that he's the foundation? It means this, that what he has told us in his word cannot change. That we are getting so much pressure from society to change our message, to change our beliefs, to change our practices. The Word of God will not change. We can have security and stability and true hope because of that. Can anyone say amen to that? Amen. Thank you, Jesus, that you do not change. Now, I'd love to take a look at verse 18 a little closer with you where Jesus breaks down what he says to Peter after calling him the rock and saying, on this rock I will build my church. Take a look at the word I in verse 18. I. He says, I will build my church. It's not the elders. It's not the pastors. It's not the volunteers of a church that build the church. It's Christ. I will build my church. Now, does that mean that we don't have any important roles in the process of Christ's church being built? No, it doesn't mean that. Take a look with me up on the screen. Nope, actually, I forget. It's not on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. No, Ephesians 4, 16 says this. From him, that's Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each 
part does its work. It was so exciting when I was a new Christian and beginning to serve with the junior high group and seeing that God could use me. Here I was, a rebel against Christ, now serving Him. How awesome is that? And I'm telling you, I I never grew as much until I started to actually serve uh, the Lord and get involved and help and be available and talk to kids. And, And then once I began to teach Bible studies and things, man, I grew like crazy and I loved it. I enjoyed it. And that's what God wants for each one of us. If we're involved, not just sitting in a pew on Sunday morning and leaving and and doing nothing else. But when we get involved, God uses that to build his church. The Apostle Paul understood that ultimately, uh, even though Paul had an important role of teaching God's word and of planting new churches, it was ultimately God who was building the church. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says this, I, Paul, planted, that is, he spoke the word of God and taught the word of God. Apollos watered. Apollos came after him to continue to teach the word of God. It says, but God gave the growth. It is ultimately God. He gets the credit. Christ is at work building his church. No matter what happens, all across the world, the church will continue to be built. Now, next he says the word will in verse 18. He says, I will build my church. The word will. A couple aspects of that word. First of all, it's future tense. In other words, the church had not begun yet. He said, I will. I'm, I'm about to. When did the church start? 50 days after his death. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to read together in a moment, he started the church. When the Holy Spirit came down, did a great miracle. The apostle Peter preached the gospel. 3,000 people came to Christ. That's when the church began. And the word will doesn't just refer to a future tense time. It also refers to a promise. When we see the word will in the Bible, it often refers to a promise. God is making a promise. And when God makes a promise, does he keep his promises? (laughs) Are you familiar with his promises in the Bible? If you're not, get to know them. It's so encouraging. It's so encouraging. But this is one of his promises. I will build my church. And Jesus keeps his promises. We can trust him. He's going to build our church. He's going to build all his churches throughout the world in a powerful way. And the last word I want to look at is my. I will build my church. Laurel Glen Bible Church is not the church of the elders or the pastors. It's not the church of the members or the volunteers. It's Christ's church, first and foremost. It's his. He sacrificed his life for the church. He purchased the church by his death and shed blood on the cross. Take a look up on the screen at Acts 20, 28, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, uh, equipping them before he would leave them so that they could lead the church. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, that is the church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, listen to this, which he, that's God, obtained with his own blood. He obtained, he purchased, he bought the church by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. It's his. So then, what difference does that make? If it's Christ's church, how should we do church? Should we do it our way or God's way? Easy answer. I'm trying to make it easy on, you know, New Year's Day. Give you an easy answer. Do it God's way, right? There's all kinds of ideas out there 
how to run a church, how to, how to handle different difficulties and situations that are against Scripture. But where do we go to find out how God wants us to run His church? Again, an easy answer, Scripture. Let's go there. When we face a problem, when we're trying to decide what to do, look to the Scriptures, look to the Word of God. That's how He wants His church to be run. Now, Jesus gives a second promise. Not only will I build my church, He gives a second promise in verse 18. Take a look at this. The second half of verse 18, He says this, and the gates of Hades shall not, another promise word, shall or will not prevail against it. What does it mean? The gates of Hades will not prevail against it, against the church. Well, to prevail means to defeat. The gates of Hades will not defeat the church. No matter how hard the gates of Hades try to defeat the church, they will never defeat and destroy the church. It's good news, isn't it? Well, what are the gates of Hades? They just sort of, you know, does Satan hold the gate and go whack on the church? Whack, you know? What are the gates of Hades? So, in Jesus' day, it was a figure of speech referring to the power of death. That the power of death will not defeat the church. Hades is the word there. The, the gates of Hades is the actual word. And Hades is the place of the dead. It's the place that those who don't know Christ go to when they die before the ultimate judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. The gates of death, the, uh, the power of death will not defeat and destroy the church. Well, what does that mean? Satan is the one who really brought death to humanity, right? He got Adam and Eve to sin so that death would enter the world. And that's what happened. Listen, Saul, before he was the Apostle Paul, what did he try to do to the church? He was the greatest opponent to the church who became the greatest missionary of the church. How awesome is God, right? And that same kind of thing keeps happening today in other parts of the world. It's awesome. He tried to destroy the church. Did he succeed? No, he failed, right? Nero was the emperor during Paul's life once Paul became the Apostle Paul. And Nero tried to destroy the church. Was Nero successful at it? No, the church grew like wildfire. And the year 303 was the final great persecution in the Roman Empire against Christianity. And Diocletian, the emperor of the time, said, all Christian churches and all Christian books must be burned. And they were successful at burning and destroying many churches. They were successful at burning and destroying many books, including books of the Bible. But did that defeat the church? No, in fact, by the end of his reign, some scholars believe that almost half the empire of Rome was Christian. Incredible, isn't it? In more modern ages, uh, we have, in the 1960s and 70s, the dictator of China, Mao, tried all that he could do to destroy the church in China. Ironically, today, did you know that there are more Christians in China than there are Americans living in America? The power of death will never defeat God's church. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. Christ's death didn't stop it. Killing many Christians throughout the centuries has not stopped it. Tearing down churches will not stop it. Muslim governments, communist governments, and so-called democracies 
no matter what political policy they may, may make up, they cannot stop the church. There may be a day in our country, and it may be coming soon, I don't know, that we can no longer meet in buildings like this. We may have to meet in secret, undercover. But will that mean that the church will be defeated? No way. Satan will try, but he will never defeat the church. Even the Antichrist will not be able to defeat the church. The gates of Hades will never prevail against it. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. So Christ here promises, he makes a a bold promise, I will build my church. And he's been doing it for the last 2,000 years. And secondly, this morning, what we're looking at is the planting of the church. We're going to look at the planting of the first church, though if you continue in the book of Acts, you see a church plant after church plant after church plant, and it's such an exciting read if you have not done that lately. So turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 2, and if you're following in one of the Bibles from uh, the seat rack in front of you, it's on page 857, 857, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And when we talk about the planting of the church, what do we mean? Starting a new church. And here we're going to find the very first church that was started. And it was started in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus was crucified, the very city where the apostles fled and hid because they were afraid that the same thing was going to happen to them. Now, just a number of days later, with boldness, they're coming out and preaching the gospel. Why? Because they'd seen Jesus rise from the dead and the Holy Spirit filled them. Now they were motivated to go and tell the good news. They didn't care if they died or suffered, which they did because of their faith, because of their preaching. But so the Apostle Peter there in Jerusalem uh, speaks the gospel, and Jewish people from all over uh, the known world had come there for the day of Pentecost, the celebration. There were upwards of three million people there. He preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. And then as you go through Acts, you'll see thousands and thousands more kept coming to Christ day by day. It's it's a powerful, wonderful thing. And so with these new believers, what were the apostles to do? Were they to say, oh, well done. Uh, You became Christians. You believe in Jesus. Now go on your merry way. Go back and live your lives the way you always lived them. Uh, Go figure things out on your own. Is, Is that what the apostles said to them? He said, no, come gather together. And, and, and I love this picture. I know it's a very familiar scripture to many of us, but it's so good to review, to remind ourselves as an example of how we ought to be a church and, and do church. There's such a good example. Um, and it, 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 it's just, uh, to me, a catalyst for doing church the way God has designed it. So take a look with me at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And it says this, And they, that's these 3,000 new believers, devoted themselves to to four things. One, the apostles' teaching. Two, the fellowship. Three, the breaking of bread. And four, uh, the prayers. And verse 43, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who are being saved. Super encouraging, right? So what we see here, when all these new believers are there, what did the apostles do? Um, They focused on, on four things. And these are practices and really commitments that we as a church, if we're going to be a Christian church, ought to devote ourselves to as well, right? So let's go back and look at these more closely to remind ourselves that what, what we ought to be doing together as a church to be the kind of church that Christ wants us to be. First of all, in these four practices and commitments, first of all, commit to learn and obey God's word. This is exactly what they did, right? Look again at verse 42. It says, and they, those new believers, devoted themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? It's the Word of God, yes. We often don't think about this, but at the time, they didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. So part of the apostles' teaching was the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's the first three quarters of the Bible, all written before Jesus came. And then the New Testament is written about his life and everything that happened after Jesus. And what they were preaching also was what now is recorded in the New Testament. So we have the Old and New Testament. That's the teaching of the apostles, the apostles' teaching. Take a look up on the screen at John 14, 26, where Jesus is speaking to his apostles just before he leaves them. The night before he leaves them, he said this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He was setting them up to be ready to write the New Testament, to teach what we have in the New Testament. He's saying the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of everything that I said and everything else that the church needs to know. The Holy Spirit is going to be teaching through the apostles. That's why it's, we always go back to, well, what did the apostles teach? And where do we find what the apostles taught? In the New Testament. Right? So we devote ourselves to the Word of God. Now, I don't know about you, but it, it's, it's hard. It's hard to be devoted to the Word of God, right? This last week, I, I had the week off, and I had uh, things I had to get done, responsibilities to do, um, kids, trying to spend time with kids. And every morning I woke up determined to read the Word of God. And I did, but it's like every, every day the time got a little bit shorter, a little bit shorter, right? And I kept going, man, I want to spend more time in the Word, um, it's so easy for, for everything to distract us and to suck the life out of us so that we don't have time in God's word. But it says to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, right? But I think sometimes we're more devoted to other things like Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu, right? Or YouTube or TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, our favorite novels, our favorite sports team, and the list goes on, right? And not that necessarily any of those things are bad in of themselves. Uh, certainly there's lots of things that are not appropriate on there, but, but man, they, they suck up our time so easily. And it, it happens to me, I'll get, I'll get going on Facebook, an hour later, I'm like, shoot, there goes all my time for reading the Bible. You know, let's be so devoted to the Bible that we're there first, and then with our leftover time, get into those things, right? So they were devoted to God's word as an example to us. Also, secondly, what were these first believers devoted to that's showing us what we ought to commit our lives to as a church? 
You'll see it there in verse 42, uh, to fellowship, to fellowship. Commit to fellowship with and care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only were they devoted to the apostles' teaching, but also it says to the fellowship. Something ironic, I think about that when I read this is, man, they had the best preaching in the entire world. The very 12 apostles who saw Jesus walk on water, saw Jesus rise from the dead, they got to hear their preaching, but that wasn't enough. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you saying? That's heresy. They needed each other. They needed fellowship. God honoring, spiritual uplifting, fellowship with one another, right? Um, the word for fellowship there is the word koinonia. Maybe you've heard that before. It's the Greek word koinonia. And one of the best Greek-English dictionaries defines koinonia this way. You'll see it up on the screen. It means close association involving mutual interests and sharing, fellowship, close relationship. And koinonia it goes hand in hand with the second most important commandment in the Bible, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you very much. Right? It goes hand in hand with love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me ask a question. Is it beneficial to you and your faith to have another Christian brother or sister who's strong in the faith and is encouraging your faith in the Lord? Is that helpful to you? Man, it's helpful. I, one of the advantages of being a pastor is that I, I get to meet with in Bible studies or one-on-one -on -one or with couples. I get to meet with so many godly people, not perfect people like myself, not perfect, I meant not perfect like myself. But man, my faith is uplifted. I am strengthened when I meet with my brothers and sisters in Christ and talk about stuff beyond just the normal, like getting into the Word, get talking about what God is doing in our lives. Man, it's encouraging. So if you don't have that, pursue that. It takes effort. You can't just wait for somebody to come to you. Reach out to people. Join a small group. Join a Bible study. Tap someone on the shoulder. Get to know people um, and begin to grow in your faith. Um, I, I see a number of, uh, of lessons from their fellowship of this first church that can encourage our fellowship and instruct our fellowship. Let me just point out three real briefly. So we're still focused on this second aspect to be devoted on as a church. And, and the second aspect is fellowship. Three lessons about this fellowship we can learn from that. First of all, share with and serve each other when needs arise. We see that with them, that when needs ar arose among them, uh, they, they served each other. They, they looked out for each other. We read that already, but again, look at verses 44 and 45. It says, And all who believed, that is believed in Christ, were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. When, you know, Bob and Mary... Uh, were out of a job, had some health problems in their family, they couldn't afford it, someone else said, let me help you out, right? This is the kind of thing that was going on there. And it's exciting to see that going on in our church as well. But they were devoted to that. Fellowship, true fellowship includes serving each other. Now, also, secondly, what we can learn from their example of true fellowship is meeting together regularly. Did you catch how often they met together in verse 46? 
It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness. <laughs> day by day. So what we've decided to do in this church series is um, we're going to start meeting every day, every morning. So we'll see you tomorrow morning. Wouldn't that be awesome? That'd be awesome. And also a third lesson I think we can learn from their fellowship was they met together not only in big groups at the temple, but they also met in small groups. It says in verse 46 that they met in each other's homes. So they met as a big group at the temple, the 3,000 of them and, and all those who were being added to them. But then they'd also break it down. Because when you're in a big group, you don't get to know each other that well. You get to know each other a little bit. It's important. But God wants us to go beyond just worshiping together and learning God's word together, but to then talking with each other about each other's lives. And that's the beauty of a small group. If you're not in a small group, I encourage you to get in one. We, we have groups called life groups. We have men's groups. We have women's Bible studies. And we have connection classes. Uh, these meet throughout the week. Connection classes are on Sunday mornings. What great places to get to know each other's prayer requests, to pray for each other, uh, to support each other. If you're lonely, it's a great place to begin to build friendships, to meet each other's needs when needs arise. It's, it's, it's an exciting thing that happens in a small group setting, and that's what God calls us to. Not only meet with the big group, but, but break it down. Get to know people. So my question would be to you, is there anything holding you back from coming to church regularly and getting involved in a smaller group? What's holding you back? And is, it, is, is whatever's holding you back, is that from the Lord? Or is it from something else? Thirdly, they devoted themselves, as you read verse 42, they de devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So then we are to commit to taking the Lord's Supper together. Commit to taking the Lord's Supper together. That's the next fill in the blank. I'm not going to say a lot about that because we're about to take communion together. Okay? And then fourthly, in verse 42, it says the fourth thing that they devoted themselves to was prayer. To prayer. A church of Christ is a church of prayer. Right? And, and we see that if you continue throughout the book of Acts, you'll see the church gathering together over and over again to pray. Let me just show you one example of that. Up on the screen, you'll see in Acts 13, 2 and 3, when the apostle Paul and, and Barnabas went on their first mission trip, it was bathed in prayer as they were sent out. Verse uh, 2 and 3 from chapter 13, it says, And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and what? Praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. A great place to pray together is in those smaller groups. We also have a prayer meeting that meets on Sunday mornings before first service. There are other prayer meetings throughout the week. Uh, join that. Join a small group. Pray. It's a powerful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a privilege to be able to speak to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So we see from the awesome example of this first church when Christ planted his first church through the apostles, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And this morning, I can't think of a better way as we gather as a church to start a new year than to take communion together. So if you grabbed one, that's great. If you didn't, please go ahead and grab one now. We have more on the back tables. Um, or if there's someone near you that maybe 
might have a harder time grabbing one, grab one for them, please. And communion, we could say a lot about communion, but this morning I just want to focus on the word remember. Communion is about remembering, right? Take a look at, up on the screen at this scripture, and if you could keep the scripture up there for the rest of the service, uh, for you to meditate on as we're, as we're going through communion, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, gave the first communion to his apostles. And it says this, And he, Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. It's so easy to forget Christ and what he's done for us, isn't it? This is one way to remind us, a regular way to remind us. That's why we do it uh, twice a month at our church, to be a regular reminder of Christ. That the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of this entire universe himself came and was born of the Virgin Mary and became a humble servant to us. Then ultimately serving us by sacrificing his life for us, dying on the cross, a painful, horrible death, not only bearing our sins upon himself, but all God's wrath against all sin upon himself at the cross. Three days later, rising from the dead to prove that his death on the cross satisfied God's wrath and forgave us totally and completely. That's what communion is about, is to remember that. And that three days later, he rose from the dead. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the bread together. Before we do this, if um, first just... Search your heart. Do you, do you really believe those things? And if you come to the place where you've really said, I, I need that for me, Christ for me, his death and the resurrection for me. If you have, you are welcome to take communion. If not, just wait, wait to take it until you've really said, okay, Jesus, I, I, I am yours. You are mine. I need you. Forgive my sins. I want to follow you from this day forward. Okay? And, and let this time be a time where maybe you you spend some time talking to God about that. Wouldn't it be awesome to start the new year in a new relationship with God? Becoming a follower of Christ. But for those of you who are believers in Christ, let's take the bread together. And what I'd like you to do, um, just quietly between you and the Lord, take some time to confess any sins. We are to confess our sins day by day with the Lord, right? But when we take communion, it's a particular reminder to do that as we consider the cross of Christ. So Take, take a moment and just quietly between you and the Lord and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, we thank you that your forgiveness is real. We, for, we thank you that your forgiveness is total. All you ask is for us to be honest about it and confess it to you and ask for strength to change. So Lord, now we, we just thank you for this bread that symbolizes the death of Christ and his broken body on the tree. 
Let's take it together in the name of Jesus. And then it says in verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This juice represents His blood. It reminds us of His blood. The painful shedding of His blood as He was beaten by the whips, as He was nailed to the tree, as He was pierced for our transgressions. Let's take this time to thank Him. We took time to confess our sins. Now let's take time to thank Him. There's a lot to thank Him for. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. So let's take a moment to thank Him and then we'll drink it together. can't thank you enough, Father, for giving what was most valuable to you to be sacrificed on the cross for us. Jesus, we can't thank you enough for becoming a human being, being falsely accused and hated, and then suffering and dying, arms stretched out and nailed to that cross, feet nailed to that cross, spear pierced in the sides, crown of thorns pounded onto your head. Jesus, we can't thank you enough. We love you so much for how you've loved us first. Let's take this cup in remembrance of him. Thank you, Jesus. So now, we worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Father. Thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' wonderful name, and all God's people said, So with that,